Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I sent up the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood, you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word and thank you that Revelation read. They've been heard and this picture of some future which can feel far away is something that is going on behind the scenes. And Lord, we thank you for our part in that. 
pray that as this evening we open these words, you would speak to each of us and you would remind us of your great purposes for each of us as your people uh, for your glory. Amen. Um, I'm aware that having helped plan this evening's service, there was plenty of standing. Um, don't worry, in, in heaven there'll be plenty of prostrating. So <laughs> falling on your face, that'll be fine. That'll be good. And you'll be able to sort of say, ah, it's okay. We did all the standing earlier on. <laughs> what it might be to come into, into God's presence, uh, I, we wonder. Um, there's a story uh, about a mother who noticed her six-year-old son was deeply engrossed in trying to draw and color an elaborate picture. Uh, what are you drawing, dear? She asked. I'm drawing a picture of God, he answered. That's very nice, dear, she said. But you know, no one really knows what God looks like. Well, they will now, was the reply. <laughs> Fantastic, isn't it? What, it? what it might be to have an image of, of what God is really like, what it is to see uh, what that might be in your amazing, holy and bright white light that's that's filled you and, and enabled you to just say, I know, in my knower, in my heart, I know uh, that there is a God. And it helps us uh, just to, uh, to go further and go on. And, and actually, within the sort of the revelation, this kind of comes as a, a, a sort of a, here it is. This is what you're looking for. This is where you're aiming. Because the rest of it, or the next few chapters at least, get pretty dark and grim. We see... Uh, but let's have a look in this, this chapter in particular. And the scene, to my way of thinking, has uh, three acts. We have a gathering around uh, the throne. We have the appearance of the lamb. And we have uh, the, the praise. <coughs> wow. Sorry, my grandfather used to sneeze twice as loud as that. I hope you didn't get that on tape. Um, okay, so we have the gathering around the throne. We have the appearance of the lamb. And we have uh, the... the uh, the wonderful worship uh, which he uh, encompasses, which he imbues upon us because of who he is. So let's have a look. And um, we've got uh, this gathering around the throne, and we may need to look a little bit further back. Halfway through chapter four, uh, we see some different characters. They're still there in chapter five, the, the four living tale, and we also have uh, some angels at least. Um, let's have a just quick look at that. But more, most important is this central figure, the one who sits on the throne. Who is worthy to break open the seals and open the scroll? He's got this scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I mean, the fullness of it. In the ancient world, you could write on one side and you use the sort of the vein of the material, the papyrus, as kind of lines. But this seal, uh, this scroll is so full uh, that it's, it's got so much in it. And it's written on both sides, and it's sealed perfectly. It's going to be a perfect uh, person. It's so important who is going to open it. And it's held, uh, it's sat on the throne of a scroll with writing on both sides, and this one has this scroll, and it should be in the Greek, it, 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 in, not in the right hand, but on the right hand. The right hand is open. It's offering it. It's holding it out. Who will be able to open this scroll. Who can open it? And, there's, and this scroll, we learn as we read through, has got the will of God, hence, the things he wants to happen, that the meaning of life is in this scroll. 
There's none who can open it. Even around as you cast, as John casts his eye, and he sees around this throne room, the strong angel. You know, we sort of have a kind of cutesy, cupidy picture of angels and cherubs and seraphim. But if we look to Isaiah chapter 6, it suggests that they're very tall, quite powerful individuals. They're not to be messed around with. They don't sit on clouds. You know, they're not sort of cute baby type figures. It's a strong angel. Amongst the angels was this strong angel, and he uh, can't do it. And then we have the 24 elders. But who are they? Yeah, these, these are supposed, the best way to understand them is as representatives of the people of God. It's interesting in that Isaiah reading where God talks about a second time, a second remnant. I would get another group. Maybe that explains the 24. But we notice about them, that, and some of them, those things would be helpful. We notice they wear white. They say their part has been fulfilled by then. And they're there to represent God's people on earth. So they represent church. Those who have gone before, those who've known God, who are, who are there celebrating what he has done. And then we have these four creatures. Well, these creatures um, from Ezekiel 1, you know, this picture of these amazing creatures who in Ezekiel carry the throne. Here they are surrounding the throne and worshipping it. And they represent all of those of the created order. Created order, everything that God has made. Um, can they open this scroll? No, they still uh, stay back in praise, directing their praise towards God. And there's this terrible verse, isn't there? Verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. There appears to be none who can reveal what God is like. There appears to be none who can execute his purposes. There appears to be none who can access and bring his... None. None in heaven, none on earth, none under the earth. Do you see that verse 3? The entire cosmos, everything that God has made, is frustrated and weeping because there is none who can reveal his purposes. And I wonder what that feels like. I mean, we, we know people, don't we, who believe in God, but they've got no idea what he's like. I mean, it's hard for us as Christians, actually. Some of us, I'm looking around the room, some of you are a little older than me, been Christians perhaps quite a while. And we kind of take it for granted. And maybe we shouldn't. But it is part, it's so much part of our DNA. It's so much part of who we are. And we have long stories and testimonies of his faithfulness. But we also probably have friends who believe in God, who know, who know that we believe in God, but have no idea what he's like. And what must it be to, be to be aware of there might be a God but not know what he's like or have no inkling as to what he's done? 
And you know what? You know, I'm getting to that age where I can't remember what it was like before to be frustrated that, because there are people in the world who are yearning for something, yearning for, 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 for an, to have an awareness of this God, what he's like, and they don't know. And they're just going through life, going through the stuff and the horrors and the difficulties and the purposelessness of life without hope or a clue about what it's for. And we think it's difficult enough to discern God's will when we don't get a prayer answered like five minutes time. Don't we? We, get, we think it's frustrating when God doesn't speak to us through his word. And that, you know, there, there are people, perhaps we need to step back a bit and say, you know what, what, what would it be like to not know God at all? Just to know that he was there. It's quite hard, isn't it? I, mean, I think John must be in a really, really difficult place. It, must, it was so moving for him. That his knowledge and his understanding of God was so rich and so deep, and yet it wasn't being made known. There was no one in heaven who could do it. No one in the whole cosmos. In fact, only Christ, we read, can do it. And the trouble with being in that situation is if life makes no sense, we fill it with our ideas. I had to do a little bit of fact-checking. It is not. I, want, I thought it was Chesterton who said this, but it believes in anything. It's attributed to Emile Kemertz, who wrote books about Chesterton. <laughs> but isn't that true? We throw God out of the window. We throw purpose. We throw meaning. We throw truth. We throw justice out. And whatever goes, goes. And that's the world we live in. And yet it's a tragedy, isn't it? We think it's freedom. And yet actually John sees it as absolutely terrible. Almost like a bereavement, a loss of actually what are we about then? can't make sense of life without those things how then can we rally what can we rally around i love in that uh, in that uh, isaiah reading that again that verse the idea about rallying around something this banner who can we rally around what what is going to give us purpose in a world that doesn't have purpose and yet is yearning for identity that's the world we're in i think is given up on the idea of purpose but wants identity what do we rally around what do we gather around and perhaps a Six Nations weekend where Wales did something quite remarkable uh, is a time to sort of just dig, have a little dig at some national emblems. I mean, when we think about national flags, only the Welsh and the Scottish come to us with made-up creatures. Everybody else has a real animal. But we want to rally around something. What's a symbol? What's something that we can put our weight behind? What's something we can put our belief in that, that we can say, yes, that's us? That's the flag we want to wave. That's who we are. And we bring together this, these ideas here uh, in a remarkable way, draw together Jewish expectation and Christian understanding. We see that this lamb, when he comes in in scene two, uh, we see a lamb, but he's introduced in verse five. One of the elders said to me, don't weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Well, those are really Jewish ideas of the Messiah. Those are, those are Jewish ideas of what God would do. Those are Jewish expectations, and they're about triumph. But when we see it, it's a lamb who's been who looks as though it's been slain. Christian understanding of how that victory was won. Those two expectations coming together. And he occupies the throne. I want to talk, sorry, just a little bit further on. But I'll come back to the eyes and the, and the horns. But he occupies the throne. 
He's praised from the moment he picks up the scroll. He takes the scroll. And all of this, this scene just is in rapture. Absolutely fantastic. This is good. He comes and has the authority to sit on the throne. Now, our understanding of the Lamb is that that is Jesus Christ. And he has the authority to sit on the same throne as he who holds the scroll. But that's an exclusive right. And I think within the Christian world, we sometimes, well, there are two dangers, aren't there? We add people in who don't have the right to sit on the throne, saints and so on. Or, and it, which what happens in sort of Christian sects, is that you know, Christ is sort of demoted to a very good human being who is not divine and has no authority to sit on the throne. But here, in all the cosmos, the Lamb can sit on the throne. He is as much God as the Father is. And I think it's important because this is one of those chapters which helps draw together all of our understanding of so much of our theology. Ian Paul, uh, an excellent commentator, uh, describes this as the most explicit and perhaps the most complex Trinitarian statement in the whole of the New Testament. And how we relate and resolve these images, especially the contrast between the lion and the lamb, the victory and suffering, is key to reading and understanding the whole book. It's important that this part of the revelation comes now, because I don't know if you've read ahead, but chapters 6 to 8 are pretty grim, are pretty tough. And that's why it's important to have this vision, this image, this something to hold on to. And here, the thing that we're to hold on to is something that looked powerful and turned out to be weak, but gave up for weakness. But in its weakness, its power was revealed. That the lamb is a sacrificial and, and pretty unimpressive creature in so many ways. And yet it was the way in which God chose to make his victory known. And we enter into that um, paradoxical life of being a Christian, where things need to be drawn together. You think about it. You know, God, by his Holy Spirit, those, those eyes that represent his spirit, are, are given to sort of go and execute God's will on earth. And that happens in each of us, that his spirit is at work in us, and God and Jesus are trying to execute their will in us through his spirit. That's the most powerful thing in the living, in the known universe. And, it's, and he lives in you, your own gain. It's to be used in humble service. It's to be used to, for the sake of the other. It's to be used to be sacrificial ourselves, to, to love one another and to overcome great obstacles that, that, that we never thought were possible, things that we would perhaps be afraid of. And when we read this, we think, oh, goodness me, like maybe we're like John. And we realize that all is, we think all is lost. And sometimes it's, we feel things are lost. Will they be restored to us? And yet this is also a story of being lifted up and restored. That the Lamb's power, looked, it looked like defeat, but it turned out to be victory. Imagine being Peter or the disciples. Witnesses to the crucifixion and the resurrection. How do we marry that? How do we put those things together in our lives? Pain of loss and the joy of victory. 
are meant to be in us. To be in awe. To be in awe of this God. Everyone in this throne room is, is absolutely staggered and, and in worship at, at, the, at the one who sits on the throne. Chapter 6 talks about, I am undone. And yet God draws us more deeply into understanding who he is. That the living God calls us to be his people. And it's actually quite a terrifying thing to be drawn closer. And we could go on. If you think about Paul's words in, in 2 Corinthians, you know, we're fools when we're wise. We're hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And we're strong when we are weak. But that's the work. That's the outcome. That's the outpouring. That's the implication. That's the daily conversation we sometimes need to have. God, how are you going to help? How is your victory going to come out of this? How is your revelation of who you are going to be made real today? How will this be turned towards something that is like restoration rather than disaster? It challenges us. But, that is the, but there is the central figure of all of our history, all of our understanding, played out and explained and demonstrated to the whole. It changes for John. It changes this despair that no one can open the scroll, no one can make the will of God known, to, to joy. He witnesses the worship of this lamb who is worthy. You were slain with your blood. You purchased men for God. Sorry, verse 9. From every tribe and language and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve God. And they will reign on earth. How amazing that is. But the work of the Lamb puts him at the center of everything. And the contrasts are sometimes too baffling for us. But they've been laid out before us. The Lamb who looked as though it had been slain. Something that was dead is now alive. That's the essence of our story. Well, in scene three, despair turns to worship as this vision is revealed. From verse eight onwards, we see that the lamb takes the scroll and he is worthy. He gets the same adoration as the one on the throne. But if look at verse 13. Then I heard every creature to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. You see that reversal, those elements of verse 3, nothing under, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And then there's that reversal. Things are going to turn. Things are turning and changing. There's this reversal that the will of God is about restoring. It's beginning his great plan to redeem creation, redeem people and make them his, to bring them back into relationship with him. And perhaps too easily we let our thoughts uh, meander. We forget these truths. We, we, remember, we sort of remember them, but we don't remember them. You know? Oh, yeah. I remember. <laughs> That's what we're about. But in the day-to-day, -day, moments like this, pictures like this can be lost to us, particularly if we're going through tough times. 
particularly if we see if we don't see the end if we can't even see the light of the at the end of the tunnel because the tunnel seems to have some dreadful bend in it but we can lose sight of that and when we lose sight of these things um, we, 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 we can forget the faith that we once had and in those moments we behave and we act as though not being changed we become we become despairing but the importance is Christ has done these things for us. That Christ has established these things to, to make us his. You have made us. You have purchased men for God. He's made us his. We belong to him. We belong in this scene. We belong in this throne room. We belong in this new earth. The will of God is being made known in our lives. And that's a wonderful thing. But we want to not lose sight of it. And as I said earlier, it's important to hold on to partly for reading this book, but perhaps more importantly for day-to-day -day life. That God has made his will, he's revealed his will in your, in your life to you and to me. That he's made us part of his purposes that we don't run around like headless chickens, that we have a goal, that we have a point that we're heading to. And Christ has taken preeminence over these things. It can sound trite, can't it? But when we hold on to that, whatever we're going through right now, yes, it's tough. It might be really gritty. It might be uncomfortable and make you question your faith. It might be making you question God, who is love, or is faithfulness to you or those you are struggling with. But this is the picture. That this is the picture. This is the goal. This is what God has done. To change it. To make, to make change possible. To make a different outcome likely. To give us hope rather than despair. To give us joy rather than weeping. I just want to finish with um, Psalm 40. Because if we lose sight of Christ, we lose sight of what he's done for us. We lose sight, therefore, of who we are. I'm going to start verse, uh, Psalm 40, beginning at verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, and doesn't look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. But to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. And then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. Should we just be still?